to the end of our survey of Isaiah tonight. Uh, we're going to get through the last, hopefully, the last ten chapters. <clears throat> or we could just talk all night. I'm, I'd be cool with that, too. Save me a lot of turmoil. All right, so just to recap, Isaiah, oh, there's lots of different, I mean, I think I've given a different way of breaking it down, maybe three or four different ways of of dividing it up. That's fine. It doesn't come with its own outline. Uh, So we do the best we can. Uh, The most typical way is to break it down into chapters 1 through 39 and then chapters 40 through 66. Um, most people, when they read Isaiah, <clears throat> they are aware of a, distinctly, a distinct change between chapters 39 and 40, right? 39 ends with um, the story of Hezekiah, the prophecy of the exile, the impending exile, in a, in a couple generations. Chapters 40 through 55, which we covered last week, are addressed to a people who are dealing with the, with the fallout of that exile. Okay? And typically, when people get to 56, they see yet a, a different kind of another... And, and so the way people have dealt with this has been to say, well, maybe there's three authors of Isaiah. And I don't want to get into all that. Um, scholars can debate all that if you want. But it does seem to be like there are... Three pretty distinct sections in terms of um, in terms of the people that it's addressing. All right, and so keep that thought in your mind. I want to say something. I want to talk about something that I should have talked about a long time ago, right when we started Isaiah. But better late than never. And this is what is called the. Um, the three horizons of prophecy. And some of you may have heard something similar to this. Um, but when you're reading Old Testament prophecy, you know, typically when we think of prophecy, the first thing that comes to our mind is telling the future. That is involved in prophecy, but that's not necessarily the primary thing that prophecy is about. You know, it's not just fortune telling. It's not just, um, you know, Nostradamus <laughs> predictions. Usually, the bulk of prophecy is directed toward the people who were hearing it right then. God has a word to say right then, in that moment. So, the three horizons of prophecy, the first horizon, and this is like, you know, you look out in, into the, uh, you look out on the horizon, and you can see there's one horizon right here uh, of this line of trees. Well, if that was all gone, then maybe I'd see the horizon of uh, the, the, the distant hills. And if those were all gone, maybe I'd see an even farther horizon. Okay, You're looking in the same direction, but your focus is on near, semi-far, and far. Okay? And prophecy, it, prophecy does this. 
And there aren't maybe just three, but one good way to look at it is that prophecy deals with when a word of God comes to a people, it can fall on differing horizons. And all of these, these three horizons, you see them, all three of them, used all through the book. So it's not like a prophet is in one mode now, a prophet is in, you know, a prophet isn't saying, all right, I'm dealing with horizon two, I'm dealing with horizon three. Um, but the, the three are, the first one is the Old Testament, the people, the current people, right? The historical situation, the historical people into, to whom the prophet was sent. There is a lot of this kind of prophecy going on in chapters 1 through 39. Okay? Isaiah was sent to Ahaz. Isaiah was sent to Hezekiah. In the year that King Uzziah died, right, it's very much situated in the historical context. And Isaiah has a word for that people right then. The second horizon would be the, the New Testament horizon. Or you could call it the, the, the Christ or the Messiah horizon. And that is, many times in prophecy, in the midst of them addressing the current situation, they also kind of give, give a hope of there's one coming. Right? And there's lots of that also in Isaiah. There's messianic prophecies. And there's some in the first part, the first section. There's some in that chapters 40. There's a lot in chapters 40 through 55. And, and there's a lot in the, the last section. So that's kind of woven into this book as well. And then the third horizon, and this is where, the reason I bring this up now is this is where the last part of Isaiah really kind of camps out. Is, is the horizon of the new creation. The future that is not yet. It's still to come. Okay, and the fancy word for this is eschatology. Right? The end times, the end, or not just the end times, like everything is going to end, but the, where is it all headed? Where are we all headed with this? The destination, eternity, the final state of things. So prophecy works on, you know, it kind of switches back and forth between those three horizons. You can see all three of those. I mean, can you, you can probably associate a passage in Isaiah with each of those, can't you? I mean, the, the first horizon is pretty easy, right? If, if it's addressed to a historical figure right then, you know, to the, the prophecy to the king of Tyre, right? That's pretty, pretty clear, right? It's the prophecy to the king of Tyre. We've talked a lot about some of those New Testament passages, uh, the, the New Testament horizon in Isaiah. But this last half, or this last third, you could call it, of Isaiah, really does point us to the new creation. All right, Isaiah 55 through 56 weigh heavily toward, I'd say, horizons two and three. If you notice, there aren't really any historical markers, historical figures mentioned by name in this last part. There were a lot in chapters 1 through 39. In fact, the, that whole section kind of revolves around those two historical narratives with Ahaz and Hezekiah. In the second section, there's a, there, we didn't talk about it last week, but what historical situation does it mention? It mentions, it's an interesting one. Do you remember? Is around chapter 45. And it wasn't a Jewish king. Anybody remember? 
it mentions Cyrus. Cyrus was the one who eventually gave the all clear for the Jews to go back into their land. And God used Cyrus. Okay? And, and uh, Cyrus' story is told um, in, in future, in uh, books that we're actually going to study probably later in the year. So there's that historical situation, but it's not the exile is coming, right? That one is exile is ending, okay? But here in this last part, we don't have any, we don't have any historical situations to, uh, to give us the context, okay? So it's not so much addressed to a particular historical situation. And so that, that points us toward the second and third horizon. This is a portion of Scripture. You know, if, if chapters 40 through 55 were a portion of Scripture to a people tasting the bitter effects of exile, this is a portion of Scripture for those who have tasted the saving power of God, but who are still waiting for the final outcome, for the final judgment of all things. All right? God has moved in powerful ways, but we look around... And it's not, it's still not how we thought it was going to be. You know, those glimpses that we got of that third horizon, we still don't see that. We still don't see that. For Israel, this was, they've returned from exile. But we're nowhere close to, you know, some of the promises that God has given us, has given to David what the kingdom of God should be, that this should be the kingdoms where all the nations flow here. You know, those glimpses that we get of the, the city of, of God, the Zion, the heavenly city. Um, we don't see it, right? We're back in our land technically, but we really don't see it. It's not what we thought it would be. And so I think this is a great section for us because we're in somewhat of the same situation except we're not heading into the time of Christ. We look back on the time of Christ, but we're heading into the end of all things. And we await the final consummation, the final, uh, the second coming of Christ, and the final restoration of all the earth. We await the new heavens and the new earth. But we're still in, this, we're, we're in a similar situation to what this uh, portion of Isaiah was originally addressed to. And so we see, we see in this section all the familiar enemies of the people of God. They're all still here, right? Idolatry is still here. You still got a lot of words to say about idolatry. Disobedience apparently is still here. You know, I'll just read some of this. Chapter 56. Thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast. So this is addressed to people who need to hold fast, hang on. Who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, now this is where we get a sense that this is not, this is not the same group of people that the first part of Isaiah was addressed to. This is addressing a group of people that's made up not just of Israelites, but of foreigners, too. 
who have joined themselves to the Lord. See that? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Right? Remember, uh, God had told Hezekiah that his sons would become eunuchs in Babylon. So apparently these people have come back and they're, they're still trying to get out of that former life, that life of exile. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. That's a pretty cool passage of scripture. Um, especially for people called to live a single life or for those who, for, for whatever reason, you know, can't have biological children. This is such a hopeful passage here. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, to choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. That's pretty amazing. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Now, this was a scripture that Jesus had on his heart when he went in to cleanse the temple in the New Testament. And maybe we'll look at that uh, a little bit next week. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And this echoes Jesus' words in John. I have sheep who are not of this fold. I must go gather those sheep. So here's a, a, a group of people that Isaiah is talking to who are mixed, who are sort of post-exile. They're still trying to come out of that life, painting a vision of what the people of God can be, what we were meant to be. Hey, we are still called to be that light to the nations, to be that city on a hill where every nation will come. And all foreigners, if you want to come, everybody come. Right? Remember how uh, in chapter 55 it ends with, come, all who are thirsty, come. But at verse 9, we, get, we begin to get a glimpse that all is not right yet. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest, his watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Verse 12. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink. Oh, verse 11. It says, they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Sin is still here. Still, sin is still here corrupting and rotting the life within the people of God. So Isaiah is speaking to those who, he, he emphasizes here the Sabbath, who use the Sabbath for their own gain, who use it just to, to do their own pleasure. And he also talks about fasting. Chapter 58 deals largely with fasting. So who's he talking to? People who are religious, but who, are, who have turned aside within their religion, each to his own way. Okay, They're called the people of God. They think they're the people of God. 
But in essence, this is still the same old mess that got you thrown out of the land in the first place. All is not as it should be yet. Chapter 59 really shows that the sin and the curse, even after this great return from exile, sin and the curse still are getting the best of the people of God. And in chapter 59, we have one of the bleakest pictures of humanity, I think, in all of Scripture. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. Answering probably some of the doubts of the people of God. God can't save us. There's nothing more he can do. No, no, no. (laughs) The problem's not here. Let me tell you. The problem's not up here, everybody. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you. He's not hiding his face. It is your sins that have hidden your face from him. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. Verse 9. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, behold, darkness. And for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears and we moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none. For salvation, but it is far from us. For our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us, and our transgressions are with us. We know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord. Verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. And uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The people that want to do the right thing. They end up getting eaten up alive. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. He saw that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. No one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation. (laughs) I got to do it myself. And his righteousness upheld him. Now, this is where we get to the second horizon here. Right? This, stir- this current state of things is not, we've experienced a, a, a lot of saving acts of God, but salvation itself has not come fully upon this people. Right? It's still a corrupt people. And there's no one, God says, there's no one to intercede. So his own arm brought him salvation. And that's Jesus. He put on righteousness as a breastplate. And a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so will he repay. Wrath to his adversaries. Verse 20. And a redeemer will come to Zion. There's still, there's still an act of salvation that we're waiting for. 
to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, now listen, as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. This is my covenant with them, says the Lord, my spirit that is upon you. And my words that I have put in your mouth shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Yes, you've gone out in exile. Yes, you've experienced a return from exile. But we're right back where we were. We're right, we are right back where we've been so many times. And there still remains this redeemer to come to Zion. Again, this is, we're on that second horizon here. There is going to come one who will, who will um, bring salvation. He will intercede. He will bring righteousness into the city of God. There's two aspects, there's two big aspects of the new covenant that we always need to be aware of that they were waiting for. The first one, the last section that we talked about deals a lot with that, and that is the forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of sins. Right under the old covenant, there was a yearly day of atonement. Right? But there was a, it was a reminder of sins and insufficient, you know, the blood of bulls and goats had to be offered continually. Okay? And God says that I'm going to, and under the new covenant, there's going to be forgiveness of sins. All right, there's going to be a, a dealing with sin once and for all. So that's one aspect of the new covenant. And the, the previous section of Isaiah really dealt with that. Right? That's Isaiah 53. He took on the sins. And he became the atoning sacrifice for sin. In this part... We have the second aspect of the new covenant that's crucial to understand. If you're really to understand the gospel, what Jesus came to proclaim. And that is the Holy Spirit. His presence with his people. Right? This was signified by the temple. They longed for the presence of God to be among them. It's a pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. The very presence of God, it was on this individual, on this individual, but under the new covenant, there's going to be one day when the Spirit's going to be within everyone. Okay? And this aspect of the new covenant is what he's highlighting here. There's going to be a Redeemer who comes. In the previous section, it was the, 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 the one who came to suffer as a servant. In this section, it's, it's the Redeemer who comes to, to offer the, the Holy Spirit, to pour out the Spirit on his people. So God makes it very clear in this section, chapters 56 through 66. And I want to read a couple of scriptures. This is what God, I think, is really getting at. 57, 15. Thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit 
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Later in chapter 66, he echoes this. Chapter 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? Right? Where am I? Where do you think I'm going to come stay? Right? Is there a place you can build? What is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. So all these things came to be, declare the, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God says, all right, I sent you into exile. You've come back out. But we're still in essentially the same boat. That's because we're not under the new covenant yet. The days are coming when I'm going to come and I will have dealt with sin. So that now your sins don't create the separation between you and me. But now we can have relationship. And because of that, I can now by my spirit, come and dwell in your midst. This is the new covenant. Right? This is what he's pointing to. So here's, here's the point I want to I draw out of this section. What is the people of God to do in time of waiting and tension? When, when we look around and it's not, when, I mean, they surely looked around and all was not what they thought it should be. By no means. What is the people of God to do in a time of waiting and tension? The answer is very clear. Humbly and desperately cry out for the Holy Spirit. After sort of the devastating proclamation of sin in chapter 59... The prophecy goes on and on and on. And then in chapter 64, it says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You know what we need? <laughs> we don't need to be better at sacrificing bulls and goats. We need you to <laughs> split open the heavens and just come down. It's not going to be right until you do. We're not going to be saved until you do. That the mountains might quake at your presence. To make your name known to your adversaries. That the nations might tremble at your presence. Verse 5. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins we have been a long time and shall we be saved? Verse 10. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness, Jerusalem a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and all our pleasant places have become ruins. He says, finally, you're finally understanding. You were never going to build a place. You were never going to be able to build a place where I could come and dwell. You were never going to be able to deal with your sins. I am doing that. This is a new covenant we're entering into. So for them, Christ hasn't been, hadn't been revealed yet. And he was pointing to the fact that he was going to come and fulfill both of those 
aspects of the new covenant, that he was going to deal with sin and he was going to send the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's what the, that's what the gospel is about. Jesus coming, proclaiming the kingdom, becoming the sacrifice for sin, ascending to the right hand of the Father and pouring out the Holy Spirit onto his people. That's the story. That's what Jesus came to do. And so now we as the people of God, we can look back on this and say, well, no, we're not in the same historical situation as those people where we've gone into exile and now we've come out and we're kind of wondering how God's going to do everything that he said. We know how, he's, how he did everything that he said he was going to do. And it was by sending his son, Jesus. But we now live in that time between Jesus' act of salvation and the final restoration of all things. So we still live in somewhat of the same situation. We will look around and we will notice sin. <laughs> we will notice a lack of justice. Anybody think of anything that is wrong in the world today? Lots. Things are not right. right? Righteousness is not the way the world runs. It's not even the way that this city runs. Find one city on the earth where righteousness is upheld. Where righteousness is the way of life. I don't know, maybe uh, Salt Lake City, Utah. What's the... uh, well, if you find it, it's probably, it's probably a weird cult, right? Because it's so abnormal. Lancaster, Pennsylvania, maybe, maybe righteousness is the way of life. That's Amish, Amish character. But we try, right? It's, it's funny, you, you read a lot of, you know, I teach American literature, and there's all these attempts to create communities you know, it's sort of one of the fantasies of American literature is to create like a utopia. And to, to let's, if, if, if it's up to us and we can start completely fresh, we can, we can make a place where everything is right. That doesn't, that doesn't last for very long. It never lasts very long. Because the very people that set that place up brought the sin in with them. It's in their hearts. And so we are a lot like this people. We're not, we're not wondering how God's... We know how God sent salvation, but now we're wondering, man, how is God going to restore all this? I mean, Jesus has already come, and we've experienced the salvation. But there, I think there's just so much in this section for us to learn, because this is a people who is living between the saving acts of God and the real fulfillment of that salvation and the, the, the final fulfillment of that And what's the cry here? What is the cry here? It's for the Holy Spirit. It's for God himself to come. And it's also for people to humble themselves. So this section shows us, you know, maybe the prior section, one way of looking at it is this. Maybe the previous section shows us that we are sinful. But God has dealt with our sin. And just as someone who's been convicted of their sin cries out for the forgiveness that Jesus Christ has made available. Someone who looks around and sees that the world is not as it should be should cry out for the Holy Spirit to come down from heaven. 
You see that? Forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. Someone who knows that there is something wrong with me that I can't fix, that drives them to the feet of God in humility to cry out for mercy. Father, forgive me. What should we do with our keen awareness of the sense that I'm still not as I should be. <laughs> I'm forgiven, but I'm still not everything I think I, that God created me to be. Neither is this church. Neither is this city. Neither is the world. What do we do? We cry out for the Holy Spirit. We humble ourselves. That's why he's talking about fasting and the Sabbath. What is fasting and the Sabbath? Channels of the Holy Spirit. That's what they were made for. Right? The Sabbath was made for man to commune with God, to be, full, be filled with his purposes, to be filled with his presence, and just to enjoy his presence. That's what Sabbath is for. What's fasting for? To detach ourselves from the mess of the world and to be filled with heaven instead. Right? To detach ourselves even from food so that we can be filled with heavenly food. And so the cry here is, don't fast that way, fast this way. Don't Sabbath that way, Sabbath this way. Not as a law, but under the new covenant. Stuff isn't right. You're right. There is no justice. I mean, chapter 59 could just as well be a description of the United States of America in 2021 as it could the people of Jerusalem several hundred years before Christ. And what does it say? Hey, even foreigners, people who aren't called the people of Israel, they can come and do this. They can come and seek God and attach themselves to him and enjoy what he enjoys and praise him for the reasons that he's praiseworthy. And I will give them a place. And from there, my glory will be able to fill the whole earth. So again, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What is the house you would build for me? And where is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. This is the proper way to fast. Things aren't the way it should be. My neighbor is going to hell. My coworker is full of bitterness. God, come down. That's the kind of fast that God answers, and that's how he does send his Holy Spirit into the earth. This is what will actually begin to make our lives reflective of the Holy Spirit. When his people are humble and contrite, crying out for his presence. God says, now I can come dwell. That's, that's all I've been waiting for. Right? I've been sacrificing that he goes on. He talks, he who slaughters an ox is like he who kills a man. We're not talking about sacrifice. <laughs> you don't need to sacrifice more. You need to be more humble. You need to be more broken. You need to be more desperate for my Holy Spirit. Now I can come. And dwell. And the city actually begins to become the city of God at that point. This is what will draw foreigners to make 
their home with us, to attach themselves to the Lord. Because we've built something great? Because we have some corner on, on successful living? No. Because we're humble and contrite, and we tremble at the word of God. And we have no other hope than the Holy Spirit. This is what will bring about true conviction of sin amongst the people of God and within our cities. When we're humble and we're contrite, we tremble at his word. And this is how God's glory will actually begin to go forth in the earth, to transform even creation itself. When his people are worshiping him, when they're, when they're Sabbathing with him, not, again, you got look at how many times Jesus had to adjust the Pharisees' views of the Sabbath. <laughs> Jesus loved to work on the Sabbath. He was healing all over the place. Why? Because that's what Sabbath was all about. Allowing, the, the, allowing the, the culture of heaven to come flooding into the earth. This is what redeems, this is what brings us forward into the restoration of all things. When his people are humble and contrite and they tremble at his word. That's all he's ever been looking for. And that's all he's ever going to be looking for out of his people. Amen? Because we live under this covenant where, hey, there's sin. God's dealt with it. Forsake it. Leave it behind. It's forgiven. It's dealt with. Live in in a different way now. Hey, we don't know how to make our lives or make anything the way that it should be. God's thought of that too. He'll send the Holy Spirit. He'll send heaven streaming down into your life and out from your life into the world. And you will be a part of the new creation. You carry it within you. The new creation. You are a new creature. That's what it says. All things have passed. All things are made new. 65, 17. Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. Or an old man who does not fill out his days. The young man shall die a hundred years old. The sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. And while they are yet speaking, I will hear. And here we have one of those images from the, all the way back in chapter 9, I think it is. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. 
and the dust shall be the serpent's food. Just deal with that old serpent. He's been nagging the people of God since the garden. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Isn't that awesome? So here's the thing. We're not, we're not just waiting around as forgiven sinners till we finally get out of this dirty old place and go to heaven. God is coming to judge the earth. He's coming to cleanse the earth. But when he comes, he's coming to restore. And he's bringing with him heaven and a new earth. And it's going to be restored. So like what God wants in eternity looks kind of like this. <laughs> right? It's not clouds and craziness that we can't. God created what he wanted already. And we messed it up and he's coming to restore it, make it new. All right, so we have a lot of responsibility in the way that we live our lives. Okay, this isn't about making sure that I'm going to go to heaven when I die. This is about making sure that because, because, I'm a, because I live under the new covenant, I don't live my life in this whole thing about my sin has separated me from God and I have no way of, of living. In it. No, all that's been dealt with. So now I live out the resurrection life. Now, and as I do, just like when Jesus was on the earth, it brings life and restoration to everybody and everything that I touch. That's what we do. That's what our calling is. That's what our mission is. All right. And it begins and ends when people understand that we have nothing (laughs) and everything is wrong. But God has his own arm has brought him salvation. And now he has poured out his spirit. And we can cry out for his spirit. And as we do, his life and his, uh, the, heaven, the life of heaven. I mean, this is how we pray. This is how we pray every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why pray that? Unless you believe that as you're doing that, the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And the life of heaven does come forth from your life into the earth. I mean, Jesus didn't just tack that on there as a, some sort of jingle. This is who we are. That's the core of the way that we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven through your people by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So that's what this is pointing to. It's a glorious vision. And it's not, it's not like, oh, we just got to sit in the, in the mess and the filth until one day God goes, bloop, and it's all done. No, we got to sit in the mess and the filth and long for that day and pray it down so that because of our life, a little bit of that mess and a little bit of that filth is dealt with, is turned into something else. Amen. First in our own lives, but then in the people that we touch, in the, in the part of creation that we steward, we can make it. If we, if we cry out, if we're humble and contrite and don't form and fashion things after our own wills, but wait on God. He will, by his Holy Spirit, bring heaven into the earth. That's what you were created to do. And that's what you have been enabled to do and empowered to do by the work of Jesus. You weren't just forgiven. You were filled with the life of heaven and called to live out that life for the rest of your days. Amen? This is a very hopeful way to end Isaiah. Hey, yeah, he's, he's coming back and he is bringing vengeance, right? I mean, 
in no uncertain terms, right? This is the one. When he comes, his adversaries are toast. I mean, that's, that's essentially what it's saying here. But between now and then, we don't just kind of sit around and, and wallow in the muck. We receive the Holy Spirit. He has rent the heavens. He has come down. And we live that life here now. Amen? So we have a lot of living to do. Right? Before God takes us. And he, you know, his timing is his timing. But we have a lot of living to do. We have a lot of, of heaven to bring on earth. All right? And I have so much faith that God and so much hope in God's ability to, uh, to redeem us, but to also redeem the world through our lives. That's, that's the covenant that he's made with us. We aren't sufficient for it. Right? As Paul makes this very clear. We aren't sufficient to be ministers of this reconciliation. But we have this treasure in jars of clay. But it is a treasure. And we do have it. And it is the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Actually, I can't call up someone to lead worship. Let me head up to the... Let's uh, let's sing a song uh, to rejoice in this truth together. Stephen picked all these songs ahead of time. I just did the songs that he, but I thought they were perfect, and I think this song is a perfect song to close with. As we stir up these truths and, and pray for the Holy Spirit, humble yourself. Make your heart contrite before the Lord. And uh, let's be full of the Spirit.
one or two people close us in prayer. I know someone's got something burning on your heart in response to this. Uh, so just go ahead and lift that up to the Lord and we'll, uh, we'll agree with you. by praying the Lord's Prayer together. But think about this as the prayer of the New Covenant people. And those things that we talked about tonight about the New Covenant, the forgiveness of sins, and uh, the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of heaven on earth. Uh, so let's pray the prayer of the New Covenant people together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Go in his power. You just seem you seem at home here. <laughs>